So, Mark. Yes? There's a moment in this movie where Sarah Jessica Parker is making dinner for her boyfriend Dermot Mulroney's family. I guess she's making breakfast. Yes. And multiple people are shocked that she has put mushrooms in it because Dermot Mulroney is allergic to mushrooms. Which she should know. (laughs) She should know. It's weird to be at the point where you are spending Christmas with someone's family and you're not aware of their food allergies. Yeah. I mean, especially they... Are they living together? That's the impression I got. You would think so. Yeah. It's a weird moment. It's one of those like weird it's moments weird. in this movie. One of many moments in this movie that makes you ask, what is going on with these people? Yeah. It's definitely um, one of the moments in this movie that will influence my uh, score that I give it at the end. Oh, for sure. As a spoiler alert. But, you know, before we go too deep into all of that, I was wondering... Are there any other allergen moments in movies that stand out to you when you think about this? I think the number one, of course, is the hit rom-com Hitch. Oh, yeah. He blows up to an aggressive level. I don't remember what triggers it, but it is absurd, the makeup they put on this man. And then watching him drink Benadryl with a bendy straw like a juice box was very amusing, even if that is... Not exactly medically appropriate. I forgot about that. Wow. We've covered Hitch. We did. We did very early on the show. Yes. I'm impressed I remembered. Yeah. Uh, Mark, do you think Will Smith's going to get an Oscar nomination again? We're right around Oscar nominations time. Uh, No, I do not. <laughs> oh, you don't think so? Also, are there movie? is there a movie he's, like, would be a contender for? We're recording in November, so we have not seen Emancipation yet. The Antoine Fuqua, like, slavery movie that he's in. Oh, yeah. But the early reactions are pretty good. And there was a lot of rumors in the Hollywood press about, like, Apple's sitting on this movie and it's pretty good. And they were, like, debating whether to put it out this year or not and decided to go for it. <laughs> I Isn't it, like, a 10-year ban? On, like, membership. But that, that doesn't technically render him ineligible for nominations because people can get nominated without being members of the Academy. Mm. I think it's also his ability to show up at the event. Yeah, people are no-shows sometimes. He can he could be a Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. But no, I think you're right. I think I think it is not in the cards for him this year. So what is your go-to allergy moment? I had two also from movies we've covered on this podcast. And really like the scene in The Family Stone... I think they are unreasonable allergy scenes for different reasons. One is Patrick Warburton's bee allergy in the film Bee Movie. Oh my god, of course. Where Patrick Warburton is presented as a horrific villain for not wanting to be around things that can kill him. And for being upset when his girlfriend is flirting with a bee. When his girlfriend leaves him for a bee. Which I think is fine. I think Patrick Warburton did no wrong. Perhaps the true hero of B-Movie. I don't think there are any heroes in the film B-Movie. What about Southern lawyer John Goodman, who puts Sting on the stand, thinking that he has some association with bees? <sighs> what a weird-ass movie. What a weird movie. Uh, my other one is, of course, the infamous Peter Rabbit. Oh my god, I forgot about the attempted murder. In which cackling rabbit James Corden tries to murder Donald Gleason. Yikes. Yeah. Forgot about that. Um, that movie is bad. No good. That's my hot take. It might be better than the second one. I'd have to think about that. How could it be worse? Than The Runaway? Yeah. Or how could The Runaway be worse? No, how could the first one be worse than the second one from the way you have described it? Yeah. Yeah, I think the first one's better. We gotta do Annie 2014 to round out our Will Gluck coverage. Did we do an episode on... That movie? On Peter Rabbit 2? Or no, on Peter Rabbit. We sure did. We actually did it twice because something messed up the recording. So we recorded two Peter Rabbit episodes back-to-back days. Oh god, I forgot about that. Did we make Nick do it with us? No, he refused to- Or did he just see the movie? He never did either. He actually refused to watch the whole movie again, as I recall. We didn't do it. No, we saw the movie in theaters and then two years later did an episode on it. You've seen that movie twice. Oh, God. What's wrong with us? It was 2020. Okay, yeah, that's true. Oh, didn't I record that one in Scotland, maybe? You might have. 
that oh my god it peter rabbit takes a whole new spin when you think about james corden's off-screen behavior you're talking about the reports of him being terrible to waiters yes getting kicked out of balthazar i think peter rabbit would get kicked out of balthazar i think the health code would you know guarantee he'd have to be removed yeah especially if he had teamed up with a streetwise rabbit pretending to be an old friend of his dead dad to pull off heists I think that that movie should have leaned into the urban foxes of London. In, did instead, a, did any was, foxes show up? I don't think so. There's a streetwise gang of rabbits that pretend to be friends of Peter Rabbit's dad, though. That's so weird. Did you know that London foxes seem to be domesticating themselves? I did not know this. They're, like, some of the traits associated with domestication are showing up in the foxes. That's crazy. It's almost like they're recreating, because one of the theories is that wolves started just hanging out close to humans. For food, yeah. For food, and domesticated themselves, so we might be seeing that happen in real time. That is fascinating. They are not scared of humans there. Really? Yeah, I had one make very intense eye contact with me. Like, he was staring at me, and I looked at him and tried to, like, as a way to, you know, like, assert dominance or get him to leave, like most animals do did not work i had to cross the street because i got nervous (laughs) they're so cool they are but i was like i don't need to get attacked by a fox tonight yeah i understand that i appreciate nature and animals from a respectful distance when i can i told you about the bear on the hiking trail right i don't know nick and i went hiking and we passed this family coming the other way and they were just like oh just so you know there's a bear And I was like, we were like, what? And they were like, yeah, there's a bear up there pretty close to the trail. And I was like, it's fine. It can't be that close to the trail. Um, it was. There was a bear like 15 feet off of the trail. And we had Shiloh with us. And we had to scurry by. She was just, she was just hanging. All right. Just like leaning against a tree, eating some like vegetable matter. That rules. What kind of bear? Black bear. Sure. I think a grizzly would have been a bit more aggressive. Yeah, it would have been cool, though. <laughs> would it? Not yeah. that close. Maybe a bit further away it would have been fun. I'm not saying it has to be the mean bear from over the hedge. It could be, like, a nice grizzly bear. I mean, I assume all grizzly bears are kind of gangster vibes. I watched Peter Rabbit 2 right around the same time we did Over the Hedge, now that I think about it. <laughs> that was, like, the same week. That is unfortunate. Yeah, we're recording this in advance. I'm excited for us to do our, our Puss in Boots episode together. As we take one last wish. I I know. Our first ever Puss in Boots movie. The only well, no. one that exists. We did the Christopher Walken one. Oh, of course. How could I forget that movie? The Israeli production of Christopher Walken and Sean Connery's son in Puss in Boots. We should do another one of those weird fairy tale movies. <laughs> the canon classics. Yeah. I think we should look into it. I, I think they're all on Prime Video. Oh my god. All right. Yes, we will be making our last wish soon, but until that movie comes out for us, and you've already heard the episode, I think we should get going on this one. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger, and this, of course, is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world. Does Hollywood romance make any sense? And what is even going on? That's it. That's That's the only question I have for this movie. That's the question. Yeah, it doesn't matter uh, if we can make sense of it or not. We're going to see what we think of it. And this week, we are taking a look at the torrid romance. Oh my goodness. Of the 2005 family Christmas dramedy, The Family Stone. A movie, Mark, that you picked for this podcast. I did pick it because I have not seen it. Did not know it was a Christmas movie, which makes its scheduling in January seem even weirder. Especially after we did a whole month of, like, we're not doing Christmas. Yeah. Um, but it was one of the few movies where Nick was genuinely excited to watch it with me, because he'd seen it before. And it was, um, a lot? I'm glad I've seen it, but it was a lot. Is Nick a fan of this movie? Yes, he does enjoy this movie. I think he thrives on the chaos. Okay. All right. I could see that. So I did know that it was a holiday movie. I think I thought it was Thanksgiving. It could be either. 
I mean, it, w- it would make sense fine as a Thanksgiving movie, or at least make the same amount of sense as a Thanksgiving movie. Yeah. One of the things that baffles me the most about this movie that really kind of shows what's going on is this family, or just these parents, live in this massive, gorgeous old house in New England, and they are scoffing at her for growing up rich. And it's like, babes, look at this house you live in. Look at your life. I don't think you have room to judge that much. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is, like, the social part of class, right? Where you get the vibe that, like, these parents are probably, like, in academia or something. Yeah, I think it's mentioned he's a professor. Sure. And there's also the fact that, like, they have this big house, but if you think about, like, when they were, like, really active parents, they had this big house that was full of, like, five kids. Too many kids. Right, and so, like, you think about the interior of the house, like, the house is large, but it, like, very quickly becomes a crowded house. Yeah, but it's still, I mean, home ownership alone, to me, like, having a house, I don't think you have room to judge people for being rich, because in our economic system, it's like, oh, you own a house? Okay. These people bought this house in 1972. Yeah, I know, it's just, uh, it was... One of the signs of some of the hypocrisy I noticed in the Family Stone. Oh, do you think the Family Stone is a little hypocritical at times? Yeah, a I mean that's intentional. Yes, that's it is. intentional, and like that's the tricky thing with this movie, which is that like a lot of the abrasiveness is on purpose, but it's hard to tell how much. Yeah, and also you know, I'm glad we're doing this on this show because we are a romance podcast, and like. I can roll with abrasiveness. I can enjoy that sort of thing. I can enjoy people being rude and uncomfortable and have a good time. But I cannot simply say, like, no, this is just, like, a prickly movie. Because it also has a love story that is fully unhinged. I just, I can't tell how much is supposed to be this, like... Are they supposed to be this charming family that can come off abrasive? Or is it supposed to be just a gang of jerks because it's mostly the latter? I think that they are supposed to be a, like, family that has a lot of affection for one another. But they express it kind of harshly and don't really know how to or aren't willing to moderate that for other people. Like, there are, like, some throwaway references to what's-his-face Thad's, like, partner saying like oh yeah like they were kind of hard on me when i first showed up but now they seem really close and so i think that's what's going on but it is just like that abrasiveness like bordering on cruelty to such a degree that you're like who are these people and then meanwhile you have sarah jessica parker who is playing like uncertainty and is playing nervousness but she's dialed that up to like 15 such that like (laughs) she reads she reads like a robot half the time and when she steers in the other direction when she's at the bar she is just like wild there is no moment where one person in this movie seems comfortable laid back happy enjoying themselves except for when she's like blasted i mean if you're thinking about characters that feel comfortable i mean i guess luke wilson well i was gonna say rachel mcadams um she is cruel she crosses the line to cruel. Absolutely. I do think she's always comfortable. Yeah, she is always comfortable. I think she's the best performance in this movie. I, it's Rachel McAdams. Like, of course. I mean, it's Rachel McAdams with <laughs> a raft of other great actors. Yeah, she does stand out. And this is really early for her. This is 2005, which is the same year as Red Eye, another movie we've done on this podcast. My God. And then the year before that, oh no, it's the Red Eye and Wedding Crashers this year. And the year before that is the Notebook Mean Girls year. Jesus As Rachel McAdams plays a range of like 15 years of age in a two-year period. Range. Yeah. (laughs) That woman has range. And how did she just film that many movies? I know. But I think I, like, I find her character, as you say, I agree that she's cruel. But I think that, like, for someone who, like, only has half a storyline... I feel like there's a lot of, like, interesting depth going on with her in a way that I struggle to see with some of the other characters. Like, I mean, frankly, even at times with, like, Sarah Jessica Parker and Dermot Mulroney, because Dermot Mulroney is, like, so inscrutable for so much of it. 
And Sarah Jessica Parker is reading so robotic that I'm like gravitating towards whatever the most dynamic thing happening is. And it's often Rachel McAdams like scheming to destroy this woman's life. I don't understand why she hated her so much besides the throat clearing. I think probably she is a person who just in general, like other people in this family, kind of reacts to new people by sort of pushing back against them. Like, who do you think you are? What are you doing here? This is my family. And that then, when Sarah Jessica Parker proved herself to be a little bit annoying, a little bit needy, the whole thing with Sarah Jessica Parker not wanting to sleep in the same room as Dermot Mulroney because she didn't want, like, the implication that they were having sex in his parents' house. Like, all of those things, one, were a little annoying to Rachel McAdams, but also signaled to her, like, oh, this woman will cave. And so then she's, like, testing to see how far she can go. It's cruel, like you said, and particularly in, like, kind of a childish way that I think reflects that she is the youngest and people let her get away with that sort of thing. Like, I don't think she behaves that way in her normal life. I think it's just when she's back with her family, she slides back into that role. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I couldn't tell how old she was supposed to be. Hard to say. And that's also just on the fact that Rachel McAdams played a high schooler and a woman in her, like, mid-30s in the same year. So it's hard to just kind of place it. You know what I mean? I absolutely know what you mean. There's also the wrinkle that, like, this dude she went out with in high school is still fixated on her. And you're like, okay, so has it been, like, three years or has it been, like, ten years? Well, uh, he seems much older than her in terms of vibe as well as, like, appearance. Well, I mean, I don't know. How old is Paul Schneider? I don't know. I don't even know how old Rachel McAdams is. Paul Schneider is currently 46, and Rachel McAdams is 43. Oh, yeah, I think it's just the fact that, I like, it's hard to just read her age. Yes, because we've been trained not to be able to. Yeah, like, even watching her in, like, game night, I was, I'm still just like, I have no idea how old she's ever supposed to be. But game night, I mean, that's the cutest she's ever been. Jesus. Yeah, that's right a good movie. movie. Oh, yeah. No, it's funny. It's like the old, like, 80s thing of Meryl Streep of, like, oh, she's a chameleon. Like, you never know what she's going to do. But with Rachel McAdams, it's just, how old is this character? You never know. <laughs> how she old can do is anything. she going to be? She's going to play the Boss Baby in Boss Baby 3, but not digitally. <laughs> she's just going to be a baby. It'll just be digital characters on screen and Rachel McAdams there, like Garfield. But she's just Rachel McAdams. It's just convincing. Isn't that a reverse Garfield? Yeah, I guess that would be a reverse Garfield. <laughs> Not a Blue's Clues, a reverse Garfield. I haven't seen enough Blue's Clues to pull that reference. Uh, fair enough. Should we do Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties on this podcast? I was gonna say, should we do Game Night? No, I mean, that's an actual good suggestion. Yeah, I say we do a (laughs) back-to-back. I think we need to do, like, the Hot Tub Time Machine 2 thing again, where we just, like, probably with Fiona, go into a sequel cold. I think so, and I hope, I I will say, I can't imagine Garfield A Tale of Two Kitties being nearly as painful as Hot Tub Time Machine 2. That's the thing, it feels like we set a floor. Yeah, it can't get worse. And that so or we Fiona challenge it, and, like, and we do like Grown Ups too. Like, we keep doing ones that have that reputation. Isn't Grown Ups supposed to be entertaining? Uh, I don't know, I just know Grown Ups 2 is supposed to not be. Yeah. Well, I will slot Game Night and Garfield into the schedule. Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties. Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties. And then if you want to reach out to Fiona. <laughs> All right, we'll see what we can do. Uh, so The Family Stone. So The Family Stone is written and directed by Thomas Bazucha, who was coming off of his 2000 debut film, Big Eden, a movie about a gay artist who goes back to Montana to take care of his grandfather. And that movie was like really widely acclaimed in gay film circles because it is a movie about a gay character in Montana, no less, that has basically no homophobic material about people engaging with him and his relationships as people. It's so refreshing to see. Have not seen it, but it won a bunch of, like, gay film awards the year it came out. I haven't seen it. I just mean in general. I do want to watch it now. Yeah, I mean, put it on our list. We can do it. What's it called again? It's called Big Eden. Put it on the long list. I was thinking the other day, like, trying to brainstorm movies we could do when Pride rolls around again. Not that we can only do gay movies during Pride. It's a good time to do them. Yeah, and I... I was thinking of it because another podcast I was listening to mentioned the lesbians and gays supporting the minors. 
lesbians and gays supporting the minors. And I, I think we should do Pride. That was a really fun movie to see early. Yeah, it was a great movie. Anyway, since Big Eden and the Family Stone, he has only directed two movies. The Selena Gomez movie Monte Carlo. Okay. Which feels like something you would have seen. I have not. I didn't know it existed. It's like 2007 Selena Gomez and her friends go to Monte Carlo and pretend to be like rich socialites. That sounds so bad. And then he directed the 2020 movie that I don't know anyone who saw it except Barack Obama put it on his list. It was called Let Him Go. It's like some Kevin Costner like movie about a dad. Oh, I looked it up. It's It seems bad, to be honest. It actually got pretty decent reviews, but I didn't watch it because it was 2020, so I couldn't see it in theaters. And when I looked at it, it was a $20 rental, and I was like, I don't care about this enough. Yeah, I was... What was it called? Let him... Who else was in it? It was... It, it seemed interesting. Oh, I remember why it seemed interesting. There's one reason. Leslie Manville is in it. <laughs> I mean, that'll do it. <laughs> I was like, what was... There was something about it that intrigued me. Ah, uh, yes. It is Leslie Manville. Speaking of Leslie Manville, have you visited Paris yet? I've not. You haven't, you haven't joined Mrs. Harris? I have not joined Mrs. Harris in Paris. You know that the books that those are based on... It's spelled like Cockney. It's Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. There's no H. I hate that. And the sequels are like, Mrs. Harris goes to the UN, Mrs. Harris goes to Moscow, and Mrs. Harris goes to Parliament. Like, there's one where she gets elected as an MP. Oh my god, I have no idea what's going on in these books, but I can't imagine she would be a good MP. Uh, Speaking of, like, weird British stuff, in addition to directing Monte Carlo and Let Him Go, Thomas Pazusha also wrote the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society movie. I remember hearing about that just because of the name. Yeah, he also wrote The Good House, the Sigourney Weaver, Kevin Klein movie that just came out and just left theaters. And in 2023, he's directing a Disney Plus show for Marvel. Well, get that bag. Yeah. Secret Invasion. He's hanging out with, like, Amelia Clark and Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. It's so funny the path it takes to get you to a Disney property. Look, there are a lot of ways to find yourself standing in front of the volume. There are a lot of ways, and there's also seems to be a lot of ways to get removed from a Disney property, such as by releasing one of the worst movies ever made, or rushing through what you're currently working on to get to the Star Wars trilogy, but you do such a bad job finishing what you're working on that you lose the Star Wars trilogy. Or being a, like, infamous nightmare on set such that they just, like, turn your movie into a TV show and put other people in charge of it. Wait, who did that happen to? Josh Trank was supposed to make a Boba Fett movie, and they were like, never mind, Josh Trank, we don't want to work with you. Uh, Anyone else want to make a a thing about a Mandalorian character? Oh, I didn't know that story. Yeah. Maybe Josh Trank was supposed to do the Yoda movie. Josh Trank was supposed to do a Star Wars movie. I don't... What else has he done? The Boba Fett one might have been a James Mangold thing. I need to look up who Josh Trank is, to be honest. He directed the 2015 Fantastic Four movie. Oh, why... And and he was given a, <laughs> another, like, Disney property. Well, not after what happened with Fantastic Four. Oh, wait, that's when it got taken away? Yeah. Oh, now I get it. Wow. Fantastic Four, a 9% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, boy. I never saw it. It came out right as I was moving to Florida, and I missed a lot of movies then. A 27 on Metacritic. It's crazy how hard they seem to have like how hard a time they have making a Fantastic Four movie because it should be a slam dunk, but they just insist on making it a genre that it is not. Like the Fantastic Four are barely superheroes. They are science adventurers. It's kind of more like a Lost in Space vibe or Galaxy Quest. Yes, and that's what it should be. I mean, Galaxy Quest, frankly, is like the right tone. Fantastic Four should probably be a little goofy, especially when you're introducing them. The main guy, his superpower is just that he's stretchy, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that that That's rarely like comes up in stories. Silly power. Yeah, and it it barely ever comes up. The thing he mostly does is be incredibly smart. Yeah, that's oh my god. I do think that stretchiness might be the funniest superpower. Yes, because all applications of it are ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, just think about the mom boat in The Incredibles. Right. So it, I, uh, a lot of times when it's like late and I don't want to think about something, I'll just play the Lego Marvel superhero games. Fair enough. And Mr. Fantastic 
can't like turn into anything, but there will be like situations where you have to use him and he'll like turn into very specific tools. So he will like turn his whole body into a screwdriver and then like open something up or like turn his whole body into a watering can and like make some plants grow. I can't imagine stretchiness and shape-shifting to be a very easy video game power. No, No, not really. Uh, But the Family Stone. Ah, yes. So we've got Thomas Bazusha writing and directing. And then the first person they cast in the movie is Diane Keaton as the Sybil, the matriarch of this family. And she's coming off of Something's Gotta Give, which is the best Nancy Myers movie. And she got an Oscar nomination for that, which was kind of seen as a surprise because it's Nancy Myers, it's a comedy... But she's great in it. And so this is like, hmm, Diane Keaton back doing another, like, this isn't Nancy Myers, but, like, at least on the poster, you're like, might be kind of like that. Yeah. Especially with the the vibe of the poster. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, this does not become, like, an Oscar success or anything. She did get a New York Film Critics Circle nomination. And Sarah Jessica Parker, who is a year removed from Sex and the City, that ended in 2004, does get a Golden Globe nomination for this movie. I don't really get that. I don't either. Her performance is so weird, is the only word I'm coming up with here. It is so strange, and I feel like I know what she is going for, but it's, like I said, it is dialed up to 15, such that you, like, cannot engage with this woman. And so I, I think it's part of what makes the abrasiveness of the family so difficult is that, like, it's hard to even be on Sarah Jessica Parker's side because you're also thinking, like, what is wrong with her while all these things are happening to her? And what's wrong with her feels unrelated to the things that are happening to her. It's an interesting choice to make everyone terrible. Which can be done. Which can be done. But it's a different type of movie than what this is going for. And again, like I said, I think this movie is trying to be uncomfortable and it's trying to be kind of abrasive. But... Part of the problem is that, like, it also wants to have what it seems to think is kind of a sweet romance with Sarah Jessica Parker and Luke Wilson, and even more crazily with Dermot Mulroney and Claire Danes. And you're like, I can't, I can't make that tone shift with you. No, because when Claire Danes gets off the bus, he's like immediately in love with her. And the look in his eye, I'm like, at least give me a build, something. Why is he just, like, love at first sight with the sister, who is the only normal person in the movie? Yes. So I kind of get it, but it's still just, wh- why would I then be on board with this relationship when things aren't bad enough between him and Sarah Jessica Parker for me to feel like that's good that he's found someone new. It's also not just someone new. It is the sister of his current girlfriend. Who he's planning to propose to. It's funny because I am not a person who really, like, predicts where movies are going. Like, my wife very much is, and she'll, like, be able to identify, like, here's exactly what's going to happen for the rest of this movie. And I just am not like that. Like, even though I watch tons of movies and I can, like, talk about the structure and all that, when I'm watching it, I'm just like, this is the world. But as soon as Claire Danes got off that bus, I was like, oh no, there's going to be a switcheroo and there are going to be two couples by the end of this movie. I unfortunately had it spoiled for me when I tried to read the cast list on Wikipedia. Ah. (laughs) Which again is not the only time the cast list has spoiled a movie, such as in Dracula 2000, where he's credited as Dracula slash Judas Iscariot. That's who he is. I know, but I mean, it's like anti-spoilers on the internet has gone too far. But sometimes, maybe that, like, there's times where you could maybe tone down the, including the ending on the Wikipedia page. The thing is, as a Wikipedia editor, the temptation to tag his character list to the Wikipedia page for Judas Iscariot would be really strong. (laughs) Just do it in the plot summary at the end, because yeah. I'm not, like, if I'm I'm not trying to spoil the movie by reading, you know, like, I'd read the plot summary if I wanted the end spoiled for me. But if I'm just looking at the cast list, that's what you look at before and during a movie. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Wikipedia, one time I donated to you, so you have to listen to me. So, in addition to Keaton and 
Sarah Jessica Parker. Like we said, we already have uh, Rachel McAdams. We have Dermot Mulroney as Sarah Jessica Parker's bad boyfriend. Like, not necessarily terrible boyfriend, but just like, this does not seem like a particularly fulfilling relationship for anybody involved. No, they don't really seem that happy. Even when they are together, even before they go, it just seems like a source of stress. I feel like I could have used a bit more backstory. Oh, you didn't get enough backstory about all the details of which hotel they were staying at in Hong Kong? Um, not that part. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, a glimpse into their life outside of a stressful situation. Because the only thing we have is them Christmas shopping and her yelling on the phone. And then it's like, cut to New England. Her telling the story of how they met is the scene that, if I were in this family, it's the scene that would turn me against her. Because it clearly takes, like, hours. It is across multiple locations to tell this story of just, like, we met when we were in Hong Kong. Like, we, like, bumped into each other because of a mutual friend. It's, like, such a non-story, and it takes so long to tell. It would be infuriating. I can't imagine listening to it. And, I mean, they do that thing where they, like, cut locations in the middle of a sentence, which every time that is pointed out in a comedy, where it's, like, you know, someone's in the middle of a sentence, and then they just silently get on a bus and ride the bus somewhere and then get off and continue the sense and everyone's like it's been half an hour i don't know what you're talking about anymore but instead like in this movie i truly believe that like she is just telling this story with the least momentum like she keeps just like looping back on minor details and it's also clear that dermot mulroney is not paying any attention to it yeah he is not listening Ugh, he's so he's so annoying in this yeah. So apparently early on, Billy Crudup was rumored for that role, which I think would be really interesting. I do feel like he's annoying, but I think he's doing a good job. I think he's doing what he asked to do. Yeah. So I have nothing against him, but it would be interesting to see like if other people could make it better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Crudup would have been perfect in this point because he was dating Claire Danes at the time this movie was in production. So you would have had maybe some of that spark going for it too. And also you would have had some of the dirtbag energy because he had just left Mary Louise Parker while she was pregnant. Gross. Yeah. Apparently Aaron Eckert was actually cast, I assume because of his performance in the core uh, and had to drop out <laughs> due to scheduling conflicts. It's the only logical explanation. The craziest alternate casting I read was that Johnny Knoxville came pretty close to being Ben. Which, one, it's funny to remember when Jackass was a big enough hit that everyone was like, maybe we should, like, make Johnny Knoxville a movie star? And two, just, like, I like Johnny Knoxville, but nothing has ever convinced me that he can drop that significant southern accent. It would be so funny if for no reason Ben had a southern accent. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like this is such a Luke Wilson role. Oh, totally. It almost feels like he's half-assing it because it's so just, like, written for him. No, the only role in this movie that Johnny Knoxville could play is the Rachel McAdams part. Yes, indeed. That would be great. I would miss Rachel McAdams. I would like to see this movie with Rachel McAdams in the lead. I think she could handle the, like, uptight and nervous with a bit more grace. Yeah, I think you're right. Because, I don't know, I just, I, I, she's someone who I do think could handle pretty much any role, so. I, I said it, I want her to be the next boss baby. <laughs> We're casting a new Bond, let's cast a new boss baby. I really think they should do a full refresh of the boss baby franchise, though. The lore has gotten to be too dense, it's hard for new viewers to come in. Do you have to watch the Netflix show? I don't know. It's time to move everything before the new reboot that's not one of the first movie to Legends. It's time, I was going to say, it's time to have Boss Baby Secret Wars. You bring all the Boss Babies together, and then at the end you wipe the slate clean. <laughs> I just, I can't take Boss Baby seriously because of our one friend who described it as a triumph. After seeing it on opening day, walked into a party, it was a triumph. I've never met anyone else who liked the movie, and she called it a triumph. Boss Baby, enter the babyverse. We get to meet all the alternate babies, and it's the fitting end to an era. 
Yikes. Okay, I should watch Boss Baby, honestly. Actually, Mark, you will watch Boss Baby because it is a DreamWorks picture. Oh, God. Maybe it, uh, that could be our next DreamWorks after Puss in Boots. Why not? The Family Stone opened in third place in the beginning of December 2005 uh, with $12 million behind, uh, in first place, King Kong opening the same weekend with $50 million. And in second place, week two of the Chronicles of Narnia, colon, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In fourth place, we had Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And in fifth, Syriana. I'm assuming that Goblet of Fire had been in theaters for a little while, if it was in fourth place. (laughs) It opened in November. Yeah. Uh, Syriana. A movie my dad and grandparents watched, and I had no idea what was going on the whole time. Um, You know, Syriana from the director of uh, Robert Downey Jr. is Doolittle. Really? Yeah, Stephen Gagan. Wow. Okay. Cool. <laughs> okay. So, I don't know if I asked. Had you seen this before? No, I had not seen this before. I watched it okay. with my wife last night. We were both bewildered. Um, we could not believe that this was nominated for the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Award for Best Comedy. Uh, you couldn't? It is also the winner of Best Grown Up Love Story. For Craig T. Nelson and Diane Keaton. Uh, a little, it got sensual between them. Yeah, there's a, you know, lead up to a sex scene. I should pull out the magazine because I'm sure it talked about, like, the, you know, showing the mastectomy scars, which I'm sure AARP really appreciated. Yeah. I can't believe she died. Yeah. When Sarah Jessica Parker gave everyone the, the portraits of Diane Keaton, and that's a real photo of, like, young Diane Keaton, but they photoshopped it to make her look pregnant because Diane Keaton's never had any kids. But when they pulled it out, I did say to my wife, like, it would be funny if it was just, like, a still from The Godfather. <laughs> or it's, like, a picture of her, like, with the big hat and, like, Woody Allen standing next to her. Just so noticeably The Godfather. Yeah. That would be incredible. Michael Corleone is in the picture. Right. Um, in addition to its recognition from the AARP, The Family Stone was also a Glad Media Award nominee for Best Wide Release Film alongside Capote, Rent, and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and the winner, of course, was Brokeback Mountain. I mean, fair enough for this movie to be nominated. Yeah, I think it's it's decently well done. Not often do you see a gay deaf character treated as a just a guy. Just a guy, yeah, yeah. And his gay black partner. Yeah, true. It was funny to watch this and remember, like, the period when we were growing up when, like, Massachusetts was shorthand for gay. Yeah, I... Lived in Georgia, so it just wasn't talked about. But, like, there's that period after 2004 where gay marriage was yeah. legal in Massachusetts and basically nowhere else. And so then for a while in, like, movies and TV, like, Massachusetts was, like, San Francisco. Where Isn't invoking it just meant, like, gay. Oh, yeah. I thought this was Connecticut. I couldn't quite tell. Rachel McAdams had Massachusetts plates. Okay. I think it was just vaguely New England. They shot... The house is in Connecticut. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Thad... Was a, just a, I he could have been more interesting. Well, sure. But I think that him being boring is kind of progressive in and of itself. In a weird way, yeah. Because he's not real. He's not a main character. He is just filler. But there is also something about like a character of that type being allowed to be the filler. Right. I wonder how good this signing is. People have said it's not amazing. They did take a couple of weeks of rehearsal to, like, sort of get acclimated and, like, practice some signing. So there's some criticism of the signing not being amazing. Some defenders of the movie point out that hearing families with a single deaf member are often pretty sloppy and inconsistent signers. That's unfortunate. Yeah. So I don't know how much of it is, like, a true-to-life decision and how much of it is just, like, these actors are not so great at ASL. I mean, it's basically like you have to learn lines in a foreign language. Yeah. Michelle Yeoh pulled it off in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but not many can. She sure did. She might be an Oscar nominee around the time this episode comes out. Uh, I love her. Seems like it might happen. It might. It would be a good choice. Yeah. All right. We should probably talk about the romance of the Family Stone. Survivor's going to start soon. Okay. We got to get going. I hit record, but still. Okay. So... Every week, we break down the romantic plotline into five points to help keep us on track, a thing we never do. Will, will you take us to point one? All right, so the movie begins with a Fox 2000 logo, and you pour one out for Fox 2000. We all miss them. Then, really, our point number one is sort of the prelude to the movie. There's literally a cold open to this movie, which is 
Sarah Jessica Parker and Dermot Mulroney shopping for Christmas presents. And she's on the phone, and she's a mean business lady. For the last time, this isn't a popularity contest. I don't care if it's the Friday before Christmas. She'll have Monday off. Look, look, the bottom line, the bottom line is there's no way I'm letting that report go without having seen it. All right, all right, look, here's what you're going to do. Get Rebecca to reach Ken. He should be on the ground by now. You tell him, forward his file. Well, she's going to have to change her reservation, isn't she? Wait a minute, hold on, I've got another call. Hold on, don't leave. I did kind of wonder, like, should this movie have Sex in the City narration? And I thought to myself, am I in love with my boyfriend's brother? And is my boyfriend in love with my sister? This movie would be a little more fun if Carrie Bradshaw were narrating what was going on. Yeah. I mean, this is a column that could be in Sex and the City. Yeah. Going home with your boyfriend to Connecticut. That's absolutely a thing. Right. And then falling in love with his brother. Yeah. This is this should be an, a season arc of and just like that. Wow. HBO, call us. Call us. We don't own this or that. No. We'll pitch it anyway. Yeah. So... That's sort of the prelude to things. And then really point number one is their arrival at his parents' house for Christmas, where they're going to be staying for several days. And she has not really met anybody in the family. I think she met Amy once, like, in New York. Yeah. But that's it. But, like, like we said, Sarah Jessica Parker is clearly uncomfortable. She's uncomfortable meeting all these people. She's uncomfortable in part, like, do you think she thinks their relationship has much of a future? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Like, even if she wasn't having feelings for Ben and things went well, like the whole weekend went well, I still don't know if she would have said yes to his proposal. It kind of feels like she maybe gets that this thing is not long for the world, but for whatever reason, she didn't feel like she could break it off. But that makes being around his family even more uncomfortable. Yeah, and she's also just an uncomfortable person. Even the way she touches him is really weird, which would also make more sense if she, like, feels like the relationship is on its way out. Right. And uh, honestly, a scene with her talking to a girlfriend at the beginning about, like, questioning whether it's going anywhere would make the movie make more sense. Not not total sense. Not total sense, but more sense. Because then it would also make sense why both of them fall in love with other people. Yeah. Even then, it's, like, much too quick. Yeah. I mean, this movie happens so fast. The other big thing that's going on in this period is that Diane Keaton is preemptively annoyed with Dermot Mulroney because she suspects, correctly, that he is going to ask for the the titular family stone to ask Sarah Jessica Parker to marry him. And she's like, I don't want him to marry this girl. And she also suspects that, like, she knows her breast cancer is back. And she doesn't want him to get married just because he thinks it will make her happy. In this movie, they call what is clearly an engagement ring a wedding ring exclusively. I mean, if it's old enough, it's possible that it was a wedding ring originally and is now going to be treated as an engagement ring. It is a diamond ring that he uses to propose marriage. But not before he gets it stuck on another woman's hand. Oh my god. Uh, we will get there. Yeah, so point number one is just this sort of, this tension. There's a great moment when Dermot Mulroney goes to ask for the ring and Diane Keaton is just like, no, like, I'm not giving you the ring for this woman. Where you get to see that, you know, she is also an unpleasant member of this family. You maybe just take a little longer to notice it because she's Diane Keaton and you have that relationship with her as an audience member. But when he's annoyed and she goes, I know you're disappointed, but think how I feel, like, at the idea of him coming to ask for it for this woman. It's like, God, Mom! Yeah, I... I had already become annoyed by her at this point, I will say. Sure. I mean, by this point, she has also started talking about how Brad, Paul Schneider, is fixated on Rachel McAdams after, as she put it, taking her cherry and then going, quote, guess he got a taste of something he liked. So gross. It's so weird for her to talk about her kid's sex life that way. So anyway, in point number two, that's just kind of a space for us to talk more about the family's reaction to Sarah Jessica Parker and also Luke Wilson's immediate flirting with her. Why are you making such a big deal out of this? Can it really matter? Um, yes, I think it matters. And no, I am not sleeping with you in your bed in your parents' right. house. Sybil put us in here together. And I said, I don't think it's right. <laughs> what you're saying is you just don't screw? Oh, nice one. <laughs> nice. I know how fun this could be for I'm you if you tried sure to make it more complicated. Yeah, but, but really separate bedrooms. Everett, it's so 
silly. She just doesn't feel comfortable. Well, why should she be comfortable? Putting Amy out of her room and all. I don't get the immediacy. This movie must fully believe in love at first sight. It's the only explanation. Everyone is so horny for each other immediately. And it's uncomfortable. The filmmaking is also telegraphing that. Like, when Luke Wilson first comes down the stairs, it does this kind of, like, shot reverse shot of him and Sarah Jessica Parker that is clearly signaling to the audience, like, oh, he's taken with her. And then when she decides, like, she needs to leave because these people are horrible to her, and she goes out and is sitting in the car, he's talking to her through the window, but he's also, like, stretching in this way that, like, keeps vaguely thrusting at her. Yeah, there's a lot of filming of his private parts. Yeah, it's, like, so strange the way, like, he is just going at her immediately. Meanwhile, like, everyone is telling Dermot Mulroney this lady sucks. And all saying, like, oh, you don't actually love her. Yeah, even to the point of, like, Thad, his deaf brother, is, like, the one who's most supportive and, like, goes with him to look at other engagement rings. And even then, he's like, don't buy her a ring. Like, you should not marry this woman. Yeah, he doesn't, he really doesn't love this woman, though. No, that's the thing. His family is right. They are rude and mean, but they are right that he should not do this. Yeah, it's kind of unfortunate. And I think that is the line that the movie is trying to walk of, like, these people are abrasive, but, like, it is partially their, like, weird way of caring about each other. But at the end of the day, it still matters that you're rude. Yeah. Like, you have to, you have to be a person that others want to be around. And so Sarah Jessica Parker is so overwhelmed by all this, and she is, like, fairly upset about all this. There's, like, one good relationship moment for them where Dermot Mulroney, like, walks her out to the car and then goes back in the house and really chews out his family for how horrible they've been to her. It's, like, the one time he really backs her up. Yeah, because he doesn't do a lot of that. No, and, I mean, we're going to talk about the dinner later, but he really, like, hangs her out to dry there. Yeah, he's not good. (laughs) No. Because... He really could have jumped in to help her much closer to the beginning where it would then not be so terrible for her. Oh, absolutely. But he stinks. Also, by that point, he's in love with Claire Danes. Well, yeah, fair enough. So that's the other part of this, which is that she is so upset that she's like, I need to get out of here. I cannot stay in this house. I have to stay at the hotel in town. And also, she calls her sister to like basically come and be backup for her. Which I understand the impulse But it's also kind of weird. It is. Presumably the sister is coming from somewhere close enough that it's not a huge deal. Yeah. Because she just takes a bus. So it's some other small New England town, I assume. Yeah, it's like Plymouth bus line or something. You assume it's a New England bus line. Pilgrim. I got halfway there. I don't know. I feel like she could have just left. (laughs) Yeah, she could have. Obviously it would make for a bad movie. Yes. Um, When Julie... Julie is the sister's name, right? Yeah, I think Julie. When Julie arrives... She gets off the bus, and again, we get that, like, sweeping romantic shot reverse shot, and now it's Dermot Mulroney immediately falling in love with this woman, who it feels plausible that he could have met before. I don't think he has. No one no, had met her has. before. I would love to know how long they've been together. It's unclear. It feels like it should have been a long time, but also like it might be, like, six months. I'm leaning towards, like, eight months. Yeah. But Dermot Mulroney, like fully leans in where he like opens his mouth his jaw drops with how much he's in love with claire danes it is crazy it makes him seem so awful like you lose all respect for him it also makes him seem dumb yes but i'd already figured that out all right so the next big like set piece is point number three which is i guess their christmas eve dinner of everybody sitting around the table and one of the first things I notice in here is that, like, Julie is clearly the the charming sibling, which is a useful thing to have. But you imagine also a frustrating thing to have that, you know, you're growing up, you're a robot person, and you can never just mesh with people as well as your human sibling. Right. You're, like, artsy human sibling who works at a museum. Meanwhile, you have to go to work every day at the business factory. It's very unclear what she does. Well, she, you know, she has to deal with uh, international business of some kind. <sighs> Yeah, it's some vague, like, consulting nonsense. But anyway, at this dinner, she decides to um, sort of, like, do this weird, like, twisting her body thing so that she can seize hold of her foot, lift it up past her shoulders, and shove it straight into her gullet. What? She puts her foot in her mouth, Mark. Oh my god. You're so weird. You didn't re- 
You didn't really hope for gay children, did you? Well, I'm, I don't think that anyone wishes for that. Meredith. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, please d don't misunderstand me. It's, I, I don't, well, I, I mean, all I, all I mean to say is it just, I just don't think that any parent would hope for a child to be challenged like that. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear a word you said. Sorry, this isn't coming out right. I just, all I'm trying to say is that I, what I mean to say is life is hard enough as it is, and it just seems to me that you wouldn't want to make it any more difficult for your child. I mean, Patrick, Patrick, you must understand what I'm trying to say, right? <laughs> what, did, what did you say? Oh, well, now, boss, I think we have been hit no, 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 I'm sorry, I did not mean that. It's a very uncomfortable scene, I have to say. Yeah, it kicks off because Thad and his partner are adopting a child. And she kicks it off by asking, like, do you care about what race the child is? No, uh, Julie asks that, the sister. Oh, Julie asked that? Yeah. A weird thing to be asking. I just yeah. assumed that it was Sarah Jessica Parker because it is weird. Yeah, but that's the thing. They're a weird family. But she just takes it too far, like, to the uh, past the point of recovery. Yeah, because what she's asking is basically, are you worried your kid will be gay because they grow up around gay people? Yeah. It, 2005 is a weird time. And, like, she just, like, keeps digging a hole when, like, early on in that conversation, it feels like Diane Keaton is, like, trying to throw her a lifeline. When she's like, oh, you know, like... Having a gay kid was great. Like, you know, I was hoping that all my kids would be gay. Or like, oh, it can't be the environment. Look at my terrible drapes. Like, she is trying to give Sarah Jessica Parker an out. And boy, does Sarah Jessica Parker not take any of the outs that she has offered. No, she just keeps doubling down over and over again. And it gets, like, increasingly horrible as she keeps insisting, like, no, but obviously you wouldn't want your kid to be gay. Yeah. And it just keeps getting so much worse. And, like, there is a thing of, like, her intention is, like, it is hard to be a gay person and you wish that your kid would not have a hard life. Yeah, like, you wouldn't want your child to suffer. But she's, like, incapable of expressing that idea in a way that is not horrible. Or openly homophobic. Extremely so, yeah. And so then, finally, like, she can tell that she is, like, flailing in this conversation. And the horrible moment is when she says, like, no, like, this isn't what I mean. And Dermot Mulroney goes, like, well, then why don't you tell us what you mean? In the most, like, just, like, totally cutting her off tone. Yeah. Like, no attempt to help. And I get it. He's mad because she's being homophobic against his brother. But it's still really uncomfortable to watch. Ugh. They're all so bad. They're all so bad. And so then at that point, she does really the only thing she can do, which is run away. Yes. And she gets in a car. And I think this takes, is this point four? This is going to be point four. Yeah. But I'll say like, I don't even think it's like a cowardly move to run away. Like you no. can say the perfect thing. You're not salvaging that moment. You got to leave and come back to it. Right. And I, the, the problem is when she crashes the car. <laughs> right. Crashes the car repeatedly trying to leave. Yeah. So this takes us to point number four, the weirdest Christmas Eve ever, which is a tall order given all other movies that have been set on Christmas Eve. This is weirder than any version of Christmas Carol. This is weirder than that time Tim Allen pushed Santa off the roof. This is weirder than, I don't know, when the Grinch stole Christmas. It's a lot. (laughs) So the only person who goes after her after she leaves is Ben. Luke Wilson. Luke Wilson. Which is weird. That her boyfriend doesn't try at all. It's very weird. He's a bad boyfriend. Yeah, he is. But don't worry, at this point, he still intends to propose. Oh, God. Uh, Yeah, so Ben goes, runs after her, and meets her at the inn. No, they don't go to the inn. They go straight they to, go the to the bar. They go to the bar. Yes. I am not a bad person. You're a total mess. Look at you. I I mean that in the best possible sense, of course. You know that. I do. I love the gays. Gay people. They know that. Then why? I took her to the nicest restaurant I know. 
and she didn't say a word to me. Not one word. All evening, but I tried. And I try, and I... I would have slept on the couch. Maybe you should stop. And he's like, let's just go to the bar. Which, honestly, fair. Yes. Uh, they're just hanging out. They're getting smashed. He tells her, here's the thing, Meredith. You have a freak flag. You just don't fly it. Weird line. He's telling her to get her freaky side on. Which, it's not that. She just needs to relax. Yeah. At this point, has he already told her about the time he dreamed about her? Or is this when that happens? I think he's he mentioned that he dreamed about her. And this is where she asks, like, what did you dream about me? Yeah, the dream is that uh, uh, a child version of her was shoveling snow and he was the snow. And it's, he's talking about how she scoops him up. It's weird. <laughs> it is weird. It's, you're like, I know this is sexual, but I'm not certain how. And she is, like, touched by it. Yep. And she's just getting hammered. She's, like, you know, dancing wildly, yelling, buying drinks for Paul Schneider. She, like, actually forces Paul Schneider to dance with her. It's a weird scene. A weird. (laughs) And then, meanwhile, Dermot Mulroney goes to the hotel to try to track her down in one of his rare instances of attempting to do the right thing. But she is not there. But who is there is Claire Danes. And he's like, oh, Claire Danes. Do you want to just go walking around through town with me? Yeah, let's just, like, casually wander around town in the hopes that we find her. Yeah, they're, like, ostensibly looking for her, but clearly just, like, Just talking to each other. And as part of it, he, like, as they're, like, clearly, like, running out of places to go, he's like, do you want to go get coffee with me? He, like, fully asks her on a date. It's so uncomfortable. You started this by looking for the person you planned to ask to marry you. I don't think you should ask her to marry you, but God, man. I just don't understand. It's so weird. Uh, I think it's also funny that it seems that this town has one bar, and he knows that Ben went after her, and that Ben goes to this bar, and he never looks there. Yeah, no. Uh, it seems like he is not smart, in addition to being bad. That, or he's, like, actively avoiding finding her. So the next morning, Sarah Jessica Parker wakes up in Luke Wilson's bed and it's like, oh my God, we had sex. It, it is beat for beat a sequence that we saw in Little Italy where yes. she wakes up in his bed and it's like, oh my gosh, we had sex. And then he like tries to greet her, but she's too embarrassed and runs away. And it's not until later that we find out they didn't have sex. He slept on the floor. She was sick. And it's like, oh, all right. This was obvious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we definitely... <laughs> could figure that out but it is unfortunate so point number five we're talking about this morning where sarah jessica parker is dealing with that meanwhile dermot mulroney (laughs) has gotten his hands on a wedding ring and he decides he needs to make sure it works properly or that it looks nice yeah so he goes to claire danes and he's like i want you to try on this ring and she's like no my hands are too big she rightly is like under no circumstances will i be a part of this yeah, she's, like, trying to push him off. And he eventually forces it onto her finger. And then there's, like, a lot of business about how the wedding ring is stuck on her finger. And it's all weird because, like, they are clearly both very taken with the moment of him putting a ring on her finger. But also you're like, what is happening right now? I don't know. And no one knows. So he is simultaneously, like, doing ring flirting with one woman who, again, is the... Sister of the woman he's planning on proposing to. I just, with like, the ring I that he's put on her finger. With the ring that he's put on her finger. Eventually they get it off. He does try to propose to her. She's like, absolutely not. Which is the right answer. I can't marry you. Uh, I didn't ask you. What? You said... I'm not asking you to marry me. You're not? You didn't... (laughs) That's just great, isn't it? It's just perfect. It's not like I haven't been humiliated enough. Meredith, it's not Oh, like it's that. not? 
This isn't exactly the moment you've all been waiting for. You all hate me so much. Meredith, that's not true. Oh, I know what you see. Meredith, the, the spoiled, crazy, racist, bigot bitch from Bedford, right? That's what you all think? That is, that's, that's what you all see when you look at me. It's too much. <laughs> and so then, like, she's going to go. Luke Wilson is into her. Claire Danes is going to go. She's going to take the bus back. And there's a banana sequence of her, like, about to get on the bus. And she and Dermot Mulroney have this moment of, like, pressing their foreheads together as he begs her to stick around. And you're like, these people met yesterday. I hate it. <laughs> they met yesterday when he was planning to propose to her sister. And she gets on the bus, and I was like, thank God. But nope, she gets the bus to stop so she can get off and be like, you want to go out on New Year's? Oh, my God. And then we jump forward in time to a year later. Diane Keaton has now died, which is sad. But the whole family's together, including Sarah Jessica Parker, who's now with Luke Wilson, and Claire Dane's still here because she's with Dermot Mulroney. And I'm like, how do you go through your life knowing that all that went down with your sibling? I couldn't handle it. It's too much, man. Like, imagine if someone had dumped you for Suzanne and then just became part of the family. I mean, I guess it helps that they both, like, found a better love. But it would be so weird. Yes! In a day, Mark. It's in a day. I mean, like, how do you move past just the fact that, like, you and your sister have slept with the same person a lot? Yeah! It's... It's weird. It's weird. So, Mark, do you find the romance of the Family Stone believable? No. It's one Absolutely day. not. So, where are you going to rate this out of ten? I'm giving this, like, a two. Justify giving it a ranking that high. Ben is nice to her, and Claire Danes is nice to him. And they are not nice to each other. Counterpoint, it's one day. I'm giving this a one. Okay. I Well, so the, the other redeeming factor is that... It's not like they cut to a wedding or they show a wedding ring on the fingers of the new couples. They are just shown that they are still together. Yeah, still. That means they made it a year. Yeah. So, I don't know. I think that... If they've made it a year, that means both couples made it past the weirdness. And that seems like too high a success rate. Yeah, that's true. I'll give... I'll. Yeah, I think it's a one. I think if one couple stayed together, like if Claire Danes and Dermot Mulroney stayed together, it would make more sense. Do you think any of the four are dateable? No. <laughs> maybe maybe Julie. Claire Danes is the, the most likely. But the yeah. fact that she goes along with it is really questionable. Yeah, that's the problem. The fact that she was willing to, like, basically cheat with her sister's boyfriend at the beginning. Yeah. It's really weird. Yeah. Well, there's also, I mean, there's the fact with uh, Claire Danes where there's the moment where after she gets back from her night on the town with Dermot Mulroney, then there's a knock on her door and she's like excitedly going for it to open it. And clearly it's like she thinks he's back and she's like excited that he's back. But it's Craig G. Nelson come to like apologize. Right. Okay. So I think we've both made it clear that we don't think they'll stay together. No, I don't think they will. It's too weird. It's too weird. But if you did have to pick one person to date, who would you choose? It might be Craig T. Nelson for me. Yeah. I think he's the right level of engaged in the family goofiness while also being able to be at enough of a remove to recognize when it's a problem. I'm going to go with Brian, Thad's husband. Well, I guess not husband at the time. Because he's just a nice guy who is there and doesn't engage in the nonsense. Yeah, he seems like a good dude. All right, Mark, last question. Yes. Should there be a Family Stone musical? A hundred percent. Can you imagine this with music? With lots of uh, dissonant sounds. Honestly, the chaos lends itself to a musical more than a movie. Yeah, I think it would work well, actually. It might be the ideal medium. I'm glad we're on the same page about that, because I thought you might disagree. No, I really think it would work. Frankly, I'm also willing to excuse more extreme behavior in a musical. I don't think I would have nearly as many issues with the couples getting together in a musical as I do in a movie. Well, sure, because they're going to express their emotions much more fully. Yeah, because they have songs to do it in. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of musicals, 
Next week, we're going on an adventure. We are returning to a place we've never been in the history of this podcast. It's time to return to Oz. We're returning to Oz. I'm excited to to witness Disney's first attempt at making an Oz movie. I am excited to see if this movie is as scary as I remember it to be. Oh, yeah. I've never seen it before. Because that is the... <laughs> That is the premise of the conversation that got us to putting it on the schedule. I mean, its reputation is very much like scaring kids. Right. I'm very curious to see how scary it is. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts to help other people find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from the Family Stone? If everyone in your family doesn't want you to marry someone you should maybe pay attention to that um my advice is when you are meeting your partner's family for the first time preparing a meal is a good idea even if you drop it and spill it everywhere that's true that is a good point So there you go. Until next time, I am a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye.